0: Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done.
1: What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimised for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximise your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow.
2: Caroline Hyde at Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York.
0: And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco, this is Bloomberg Technology.
2: Coming up, we'll discuss the outlook for China's tech sector. And as it's the biggest companies are preparing to report results, how will the slowing growth picture for China actually weigh on investor sentiment?
0: Plus, we'll talk the state of electric vehicles. As EV maker VinFast goes public via SPAC, we speak to the CEO about the deal.
2: And studio giants offer a new deal to striking writers in Hollywood we while bringing the latest reporting on that matter. But first, Ed, I know you want to drill into really what is the macro picture of today. What's right. happening in China?
0: Yeah, the story is concern about China's economy, the underperformance is in the U.S. listed shares of Chinese technology companies. I'm looking at the iShares China large cap, the Nasdaq golden Dragon China index, both down in the region of one and a half percent. China's central bank cut interest rates, a key interest rate by the most since 2020. There is concern about the consumer and the property market. This is the picture in the moment. We also go to the year to date picture for U.S. technology in public markets versus China. And there's a reason for this very clear the nasdaq 100 tech heavy index massively outperforming the hang seng tech which is the hong kong listed china tech shares the story for the nasdaq 100 ai giving momentum and investor interest in the tech sector year to date. Not so much in China, and I say that, Kerry, because this week we expect China's regulators to show their hand on, in terms of how they plan to regulate AI in that country. We know about the domestic players. Speaking of those domestic players, let's bring up the calendar for China Tech this week, Caroline. talk me through this, because it's a busy week ahead for earnings out of China.
2: It really is. We've got already Alibaba kind of making us all take a breath last week, seeing them actually outperformance. Can that be reiterated? August 16th, we look at Tencent, think and fast, Jd.com but also we have the likes of, well, of course, Baidu, Meituan, of course, a key focus of consumer, of desire to be purchasing, of the ability to spend at this moment when we do see a Chinese authority that's having to push on the economy, unlike here in the U.S., where we're worrying whether the Fed is going to be, of course, raising rates, having to slow down the economy. We're looking at rate cuts in China. We're looking at a macro picture that perhaps could be headwinds for these big tech companies. But also, though, Ed, I think it's good that you point out just how far these companies, yes, they've underperformed the U.S., but some of these companies have really added to their market cap since May, for example. This is all about a regulatory overlook, really, the way in which we see a changing of the pendulum swing that perhaps we'll see more support for the tech sector in China.
0: It's always this way in earnings season, no different in China. The expectation is at odds with the backward-looking data. So the mm. previews for Tencent and JD both hit the Bloomberg terminal this morning. Tencent expected to record fastest pace of revenue growth in over a year, fueling hopes that the biggest internet arena in China is rebounding. JD, similar story. Physical goods rebounded last month. JD is going to be fine. The news overnight and the data doesn't tell us that. And it, mm. it's a completely contradictory picture.
2: And I think that's why we want to think about the macro affecting the micro. Let's bring in Amy Selico, Albright Stonebridge Group Principal. And we've really sort of discussed it out there a bit, Amy, of how oddly, and I'm hearing it from the likes of JP Morgan, their view is really we could see big tech outperform the rest of industrials, particularly the banks, real estate over in China, because actually the regulatory hurdles are pulling back, while macro headwinds are affecting the other sectors. Does that ring true to you?
3: Well, what's ringing true so far is just how negative the numbers are coming out of Beijing. So we're due for some some good news, hopefully with the the tech companies' numbers that you're talking about. But let's just talk for a moment about what's just come out overnight. I mean, the latest numbers coming out of China continue to show that high-tech manufacturing is down, overall exports are down, consumption is down property market sales are down the government, as you just mentioned, Caroline, is reacting by, trying to, by cutting rates in order to try to stimulate uh, business and consumer lending. But to date, that hasn't happened. They've stopped actually tracking youth unemployment rates uh, because those numbers continue to rise. And overall, unemployment actually rose a little bit this past month. And so, again, the overall picture is difficult, so we need to see some good numbers coming from the the, the tech uh, sector companies. And those numbers need to reinforce that there is potential uh, for those companies going into the second half of the year.
0: Amy, here on Bloomberg Technology, we talk about the Fed and higher interest rates because they discount the present value of future cash flows for the tech sector, right? Impacting public companies, but also by-peer proxy private companies. Explain to our audience why China cutting interest rates would impact China's technology sector or help to support it.
3: Well, China's technology sector, of course, has really been um, beaten up over the past couple of years because of the Chinese government's overall rectification campaign, really looking at the tech sector, not helping it continue to grow, but really overseeing some of the biggest companies being taken apart uh, so that the government can control them a little better. However, this year the story is very different, the Chinese government looking at the overall macroeconomic picture recognizes that the private sector, the most innovative companies in China's private sector being technology companies, need to have the confidence to continue to grow, to borrow money, and continue to invest in the domestic economy so that they can get consumers out there spending using some of those tech platforms. And so lowering the rates, what the government did again overnight, is meant to really be a signal uh, to tech companies and other companies in China to borrow more money yes. to continue to grow.
0: Caroline, this is such a timely conversation because we're talking about China's domestic economy. And at the same time, a lot of the news cycle is about its standing in the world Mm. and what international powers are doing vis-a-vis China.
2: Yeah, we're all waiting, of course, for Raimondo to go out. Of course, a focus on commerce. We've already had Treasury Secretary Yellen out in China, all amid yet more and more sort of adversarial comments coming from President Biden himself when it comes to leadership in China. Amy, from that perspective, how do you see the tensions about us, or indeed US investors, putting money into Chinese names? Is this something that they should be reticent of doing at the moment?
3: Well, the U.S. government is demonstrating that it does want to restrict some areas of outbound investment flows to China. Just last week, of course, dropping the long-awaited executive order by the Biden administration, which will um, which will create a notification system and some restrictions. Again, very narrowly focused, even within technology on AI, quantum computing, semiconductor, U.S. investment into China, into areas of concern, because the administration sees some U.S. investment uh, flows going to help China's military modernization and it uh, developing its surveillance industry. And so some areas are going to yes. continue to be restricted. However, I do think it's important to say that with Secretary Raimondo on her way after Kerry, after Yellen, after Secretary Blinken already visited China. We've invited China's foreign minister, Wang Yi, to come to the United States. The two sides are trying to navigate this very difficult relationship. Neither side is willing to say they're going to let up on technology restrictions if they impact national security.
0: Amy, how important a battleground is artificial intelligence to China?
3: Oh, it's critical. It's absolutely crucial. And so these export... um, export control restrictions as well as this new outbound investment tool um, to restrict some U.S. flows um, are going to be very important for China to look at to see if other countries emulate those outbound investment restrictions, specifically in AI, because the Chinese government doesn't really have the ability yet to be able to domestically produce a lot of the technology, particularly the hardware, necessary for many of those AI applications. And so continuing to invite, encourage, uh, supervise uh, technology, in, in, technology investment into China is important. So important that the State Council just on Sunday released rules that are encouraging inbound investment into China in many technology sectors.
0: All right. Our thanks to Amy Selico, Principal of Dentons, Global Advisors, Albright Stonebridge Group. One of the advisors in the China space. Let's stay in the region and think about Taiwan. Taiwanese vice president Lai Ching te is seeking to reassure voters that he's a steady set of hands as he campaigns to become the self-governed island's next leader. He spoke exclusively to Bloomberg Business Week in his first interview with international media to tell us about managing relations with mainland China and the expansion of chip manufacturer TSMC.
4: We We must abide by the truth, which is what I mean by pragmatism. It is that Taiwan is already a sovereign, independent country called the Republic of China. It's not part of the People's Republic of China. The ROC and PRC are not subordinate to one another. It is not necessary to declare independence. What is your
5: roadmap to formal independence?
4: My responsibility is to maintain the status quo in the Taiwan Strait, while protecting Taiwan and maintaining democracy, peace and prosperity. So no such framework exists. We must work to maintain the peaceful status quo, because Taiwan is already a sovereign country. How confident are you that the US will have Taiwan's back should the situation with China escalate? The U.S. is a close friend of Taiwan. We are partners in a number of areas, from politics, the economy, human rights, to our society. The Because Taiwan's security challenges are a global concern, the upkeep of peace and stability in both the Taiwan Strait and the Indo-Pacific region fulfills the common interests of the international community. I believe that all democracies in the world, including the US, would be aware of how to respond if such a scenario were to take place.
6: What do you want the world to know
4: about you as a person? I am a rational and steady leader. I know how we can respond to the challenges we face as a country. I also understand that the serious and complex nature of issues in the Taiwan Strait call for rational and steady leadership. This will enable our country to move forward amid changing geopolitical circumstances.
2: That was the Taiwanese vice president there in a Bloomberg exclusive. Now, coming up, we're going to be joined by Tui Li, CEO, to discuss the electric vehicle maker's NASDAQ trading debut boy, Ed. Did it have a pop?
0: Yeah, big focus today on Asia tech. Actually, I'm going to go over to Singapore and look at C, the tech giants, USADRs, dropping the most on record after sales misestimates, but a really sharp decline, not just in the e-commerce business, but gaming revenue as well. That's C Limited, the Singapore tech giant. It's definitely a name we've not spoken about in a while, but my goodness, look at that result. This is Bloomberg Technology. Bloomberg Technology.
1: Visit bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more.
0: Vinfast, Vietnam's largest electric vehicle maker, saw shares surge in their Nasdaq trading debut after merging with SPAC. Black Spade acquisition. For more, let's bring in Twi Lee, VinFast CEO who's live with us from the NASDAQ. Uh, an impressive debut after the SPAC transaction closed. VinFast had told Bloomberg that the purpose of going public via SPAC was not to raise funds, Madam Twi. Was this just a marketing exercise to get VinFast's name out there?
7: Um, thank you. Uh, we have been working on the U.S. listing for uh, like two years, and we're very happy that uh, we we made it today. We um, Binfast has become a publicly listed company in in the U.S. Um, it's not just a mar- it's not a marketing; it's just a, a, a milestone that we want to achieve as um, on path of becoming a global company.
0: Madam Tui, I have covered many electric vehicle makers that have gone public via SPAC. I won't list them, but not many of them have been successful thus far. Do you need to raise more capital? Are you speaking with sovereign wealth funds as an example to raise capital to grow quickly here in the United States?
7: Um, I mean, one thing you should, uh notice that we are very different from a lot of uh, EV companies that have gone public uh, by way of spec uh, we already have a lineup of vehicles we have seven models of EVs uh, that uh, we have announced to the market uh, we have manufactured um, hundred thousand vehicles we we have delivered close to 20,000 EVs mostly in Vietnam but also in the US and uh, you know we finished the homologation of our vehicles to the EU uh, so we, we we are very Different from um, other companies because we are a lot more ready uh, when we when we get listed. Madam Tui, talk about those global ambitions because you
2: say you're different from other EVs. But what many an EV experiences during growing is recalls. Is perhaps the odd critical, unflattering review, and you haven't managed to avoid that thus far. How do you navigate that here in the U.S. to rectify some perhaps the PR hit? You sustain from those poor reviews and recalls.
7: Actually, if you look at um, the reviews or the uh, publicity about us, uh, most of them are positive or at least neutral. Right? Let's let's wait and see. There have been uh, some uh, um, like negative reviews. We we take them very close to our heart. We reflect on the feedback of uh, from from those reviews, and we. Um, make our vehicles better. We update the software when we make the vehicles better. We actually really appreciate uh, the, the feedback uh, from um, the, the, the public, from the consumers, uh, because it's a way for us to, um, to become better. And it affects your own workforce. Talk to us about the U.S. workforce. you consolidated it, seen
2: goodbye to certain individuals, put together North America more broadly. Are you going to expand? Because I know you're going to put manufacturing here.
7: Uh, well, I think um, uh, Vinfast and Vin Group we c- always continue to optimize on our resources, and restructuring of North America was just part of the uh, optimization uh, of uh, of the resources. Uh, we always try to become better. Um, uh, in, uh, in the U.S. with the North Carolina uh, plant, we, we started expanding, we started uh, hiring people. Uh, I think we at the uh, early stage of um, um, building the, uh, the plant out, but as the plant go into um, getting closer to um, opening, then we, we start bringing in more people.
0: Your founder committed about $2 billion of his own personal capital to VinFast. Will the founder have to put more money in? I just want to go back to this idea of sovereign wealth funds as well. You know, in terms of a capital need, where are your priorities to raise? Uh,
7: we uh, we have the commitment from our um, a shareholder Ving Group and our chairman um, up to two forty five billion dollars. So that would help us uh, continue on our. Uh, path. We have been talking as part of the traditional IPO. We uh, we were talking with a lot of the investors, and after becoming public today, uh, we will continue the dialogue with uh, with a lot of the investors, sovereign wealth funds, but uh, man, many other institutional investors as well. Um, when the time is right for an, uh, for another transaction or for, for the transaction to bring in significant uh, funding for Vinfast, we will do so. Uh, meanwhile, we uh, we we have very regular conversations. With, our, uh, with potential investors. And I'm sure they're eyeing the success of this particular SPAC listing thus far.
2: We thank you so much, Madam i Thank you. And it's Lee, the VinFast CEO.
0: Time for talking tech. First up, Tesla is adding new lower range iterations of the Model S and Model X to its lineup that cost $10,000 less than their previous base prices. Plus, in Beijing, the government will implement sweeping new regulations for artificial intelligence services this week, with seven agencies taking responsibility for oversight. And finally, Michael Berry's Scion Asset Management exited its stakes in Alibaba and JD.com. In the second quarter, 13F filings show that the firm exited its positions in the chinese tech giants that had been the hedge fund's biggest holdings caroline
2: isn't that interesting and as we were just talking about china about the earnings coming up about well some of the reticence whether that pushback against regulation can begin to continue the grind higher in these stocks. Let's talk to Shanani Basak, who's here, to talk about, well, it wasn't just Michael Barry making moves in tech stocks. Where else did you see some of the movement?
8: Yeah, and importantly with the 13Fs, when we take a look at these movements, these are from the end of the second quarter. So it's been weeks since then. And the reason I say that is because some of the most interesting movement happened among the most high-profile hedge funds, particularly in the technology world. So who are they? Chase Coleman, for example, Tiger Global. There were a significant amount of sales. They had uh, reduced its tech stakes by more than 5%. You have the same thing at Maverick for Lee Ainsley. And if you take a look at what they did in the quarter alone, they sold out of 186 stocks. They added 129. So there's a lot going on over at Maverick. But the tech stakes were reduced by about 3.5%. Now, remember, when you look at the entire industry, when all global fund managers, hedge funds, uh, sovereign wealth funds, pension funds, tech was increased quite meaningfully. And so this is a bit against the grain. co as well, another Tiger cub. when they trim their stakes, they trim NVIDIA, Meta, Tesla, Netflix. And so some of this could be just profit-taking. However, it is interesting to see some of the biggest Tiger funds uh, go into different places. You're looking at uh, Tiger Global, for example, and its Apollo stake, and D1 as well, going into real estate investment trusts. So looking for other places as they seek to capitalize on this part of the market.
0: There's also the acquiring part. We're talking about Michael Burry. Scion Asset actually ended with Expedia as its biggest holding, adding 100,000 shares worth $10.9 million. Bloomberg, Shonali, Bassak, and all things 13F. Thank you. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. Ed Ludlow here in San Francisco. Now, Hollywood Studios have made a new offer to striking screenwriters. The proposals include sharing of viewer data on streaming and assurances to the screenwriters that AI won't replace them. That's according to Bloomberg sources. For more, let's bring in Bloomberg's entertainment editor, Chris Palmieri. We have a lot of details about what this August 11th offer was, Chris. Just run us through them.
5: Yeah, as you, as you mentioned, these, these are some big concessions because they were real sticking points that had the whole deal falling apart uh, last May. So artificial intelligence, previously the studios weren't saying any of the definitives, they just wanted to keep meeting to discuss it. Now they're saying they're going to put something in writing that says writers will still have jobs. Streaming data, this was a huge thing because in the streaming era there's no actual data available like in the Nielsen ratings on how well shows are doing, or at least not shared publicly uh, or or even privately with uh, the writers. So there's some assurances that that will happen. Also, another big deal, uh, this issue called mini rooms, which are smaller groups of writers that meet before a show is picked up. There's some assurances in the new uh, proposal that they'll have, you know, if if not specific number of writers employed, at least some guarantees on the hours that they're paid for.
2: This is a media story, a labor story, but it's really a tech story when you're thinking about the protections around artificial intelligence, when you're thinking about, of course, ultimate how they get the data in terms of how successful their writing is. Chris, how does this play out now for actors as well?
5: Uh, it, there are many of the same issues that uh, the, the writers have, that the actors have as well, and indeed you know, we reported Nielsen data from this morning that shows this is the first time ever that traditional TV has fallen to less than half of all viewings. So this revolution that's happening with streaming is accelerating and, and the writers and actors uh, have said that the, the contracts that they've signed in the past just don't reflect these new uh, technologies.
0: Yes residuals, Chris, are a big part of the the compromise. Explain what a residual is and what is on offer to the writers.
5: Residuals are when a a writer gets paid after the first uh, airing of a show. So let's say you write a show for CBS. CBS then sells it in syndication to a cable network or a streaming service. Uh, And historically, writers and actors, everybody in the business has made a lot of money off those uh, after sales. Uh, What happened in the streaming era is that Netflix would buy a show and keep it on Netflix. And there wasn't all of that money in, in residuals in the streaming era. So new proposals are for increases in the pay that the actors and writers get uh, for that.
2: He breaks it all down for us. Chris Palmari, we thank you so much for the latest in this ongoing, well, let's call it a saga, because we want to go even deeper into it with a man who really understands the world of content creation and syndication. Stephen Will Ferreira is with us of Three Fast Studios. And we've talked about this a few times with you, Stephen, and indeed the changing world of production. From your perspective, was this good news? Do you think that this will end the strike? How important is it to end the strike?
6: look thanks again for having me any conversations are good because they have not been talking but the reality is they're still very far apart and labor day is almost upon us that's typically the kickoff of the fall broadcast season so if this continues past september and really starts to get into the october time frame it's really going to impact production it's going to impact all the new series you know certainly sports you know kind of animation you know scripted all these things are going to be up in the air obviously unscripted as well late night but the truth of the matter is you're talking about the elephant in the room which is AI and you know this whole conversation has really been around three C's. It's been around consent, it's been around compensation and copyrights and the truth of the matter is AI is not going to take someone's job it's someone using AI.
2: I see and so to that end a lot of the I don't want to call it hype but a lot of the headlines that have been around this worry about artificial intelligence. Do you think it's right that they should be so concerned around it?
6: I mean, I think yes, because the truth of the matter is we typically overestimate technology in the Mm -hmm. short run, but we underestimate it in the long run. And the truth of the matter is this is not new. I mean, there's always been new technologies coming into Hollywood and to every industry, and we have to adapt to it. Um, When you see all the power of generative AI, how it's going to really streamline the pipeline, the production processes, whether development process, it's going to get used. I mean, people are using it today. And the truth of the matter is look at where folks are going to when there is no content being done by either the studios or, you know, all the issues with, the, you know, the guilds, people are going to TikTok, people are going to Twitch, you know, they're going to go to other places, other creators that are going to be making content. And I think it's really important that everyone understands that they have to come together for this industry to be sustainable and for it to be economically viable.
0: There was a part of the Bloomberg report we did not get to with our editor, Chris Palmieri, which is according to our sources, Ted Sarandos, the Netflix co-CEO, and Bob Iger have come in very recently and started to weigh in on these negotiations. How much of a signal is that to you, that it is getting painful, the halt in production that's taken place as a result of these strikes?
6: I mean, it is painful, but I think... You really need to bifurcate the on the studio side, the two different groups. There are the technology companies and then there are the traditional media companies. And certainly they both have different interests, but they have to come to the table and look, we really are lacking any true ambassador in the industry. I think Bob Iger really takes that mantle and he's been doing his efforts to really kind of bring people to the table again. Um, but the truth of the matter is how do we resolve this? Because it is going to impact the whole industry. Content will continue. Technology continues to innovate, and if folks don't figure out how to make content, how to bring all parties together so that it's going to be truly a win-win. I mean, when you think about studios, when you think about actors, when you think about writers, they need the data. I mean, this really is a story about data. Um, You know, we actually have a couple of films coming out this fall. We have Aristotle and Dante. We have a film called Radical that won at Sundance. We have things happening in Spanish-language TV. So, you know, the truth of the matter is, us as a studio, as a production house, we need the data from the streamers so that we could understand our audience, understand what's working, what's not working. And so any type of concession where it's truly going to be a win for the strikers, but as well as for the studios, we have to bring everyone together. Because if not, people will go to different places. The audience is always going to seek out entertainment wherever it's going to be viable.
0: You mentioned some key words there, streaming, content. Caroline made this point earlier. It's a technology story, but there are essentially two different industries here. There's the legacy production and entertainment industry. Then there's the tech players. So how does it end differently for both?
6: Well, I mean, if we're really being blunt about it, you know, the truth of the matter is the technology companies, this is almost like a side hustle for them, right? I mean, you know, whether Apple is going to figure out what to do with, you know, kind of their content, they also have their core business, which is, you know, making hardware, making software and making services. Um, You know, same thing you could argue for a lot of the other tech companies like Amazon. Um, But when it comes to the traditional media companies, I feel like they really are trying to figure out how to make this leap. Certainly analysts have been talking about it and you see all of Wall Street really starting to punish you know, the media companies because they haven't figured this out. So I feel like it's in everyone's best interest to get to the table, really start to share the data. I don't understand why we cannot have transparency and understanding the audience. It's good for the streamers. It's good for the writers. It's good for the actors. Yes. And In day and age, they need to understand their audience.
0: Stephen Wolf Pereira, 3Pass Studios, always on the news, but always pretty straight talking about it as well. Thanks for your time. Uh, Turning to another story we're following in the space, by the way, content streaming, cable and traditional broadcast channels fell below half of all viewing for the first time in July. That's according to market researcher Nielsen. The data shows that streaming hit a new high last month, as broadcast fell to 20% of all viewing, cable to just 39.6% of all viewing, and then the stream. Led by YouTube, Netflix and Hulu, accounting for 38.7%, the rest, video on demand. Caroline.
2: Fascinating. It's all about the data at the end of the day, isn't it? It's also about data and diversity. We want to talk about that. In the VC landscape, Masha Butcher is going to be joining us, founder and general partner and day one venture, how she's prioritising, well, diversity in her portfolio companies. Then we want to just look at also this AI focus. We're gonna end the conversation on AI and really bring in how you're dealing with it, perhaps with kids going back to school to the classroom, how are teachers dealing with it? We've got artificial intelligence from both value and challenge for educators at Power Schools. This is a What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done.
1: What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you?
2: now for VC Spotlight. Look, something that we want to talk about time and time again is diversity, how you're investing in it. Diverse entrepreneurs in particular, whether women or people of color, seems now to be a good time to be investing in them, according to Marsha Bucher, founder and general partner at Day One Ventures, joining us now from Zurich. And Marsha, I'm going to ask you to put your money where your mouth is, because the money you do have, assets that are management, 100 million, you've got a couple of funds. Who have you backed really you feel is the pin-up thus far in terms of diverse founders making great change in the world of technology. Where have you written the checks?
9: Well, we're proud to say that compared to many VC funds uh, that's operating right now, we have positive IRR over 40% and 62% of the fund to money came into diverse founders, either founders of color or female founders. And we do back different companies. We backed a number of companies in enterprise software space, AI, climate, creator economy, and fintech. What's interesting is well, there's, there's the fear and the optimism. Weigh it
2: for us. Many were worried in this economic environment where people start to claw back, don't want to be writing checks in such an environment where valuations fall. People were worried that they just return to tried and tested founders who quite often are white men. Whereas on the other side, there's this view that founders who are diverse haven't had the luxury of big family and friends rounds and are basically able to spend and, and think more wisely. Which do you fall on? How are you seeing this play out?
9: Well, I think um, I really want to bet founders that has capacity, talent and greed to come through hard times and i think times like that are right now i think founders from diverse backgrounds has better capacity to go through hard times and optimizing company growth to the economic environment and the numbers that we have is something that's been proving it um so i think it's really about like character and times of the people um you back. we always uh, we always focus on um, we always focus on the founders that could, on the one hand, be extremely smart, knowledgeable about the topic. On the same time, resilient in downtimes. we backed number of entrepreneurs. we to dozens of female founders. And I think some of the founders like that as a ones that's thriving right now. For example, in our new fund, few founders that managed to bring company over break, even our female founders that didn't start companies before, but succeeding right now.
0: Marsha, you're joining us from Europe. What opportunities do you see in European tech?
9: Well, we invest around like 85, 90 percent of capital um, in the United States. I do think though there is a there are a lot of really successful European founders with very strong, very strong technical background. I think, for example, one founder, Alex Lanning from WorldCoins that you had on your show. He comes from um, Marzulanca and Caltech and he's from Germany. We're also backed founder of Fremode.com who's also in Europe. And I think strong technical engineering background is something that's always been differentiating European founders.
0: You mentioned very briefly AI. What opportunities are you looking for specifically in AI and, and how are you kind of seeing valuations in the space?
9: I've been investing in AI since 2016 when I saved some of the money that I had from my second company and start being became an agile investor. Actually, my first agile investment was in AI. So since then, I invested in 35 AI companies. I've been investing a lot of AI in downtime, not an uptime right now. So in a very, very modest, very reasonable valuations. Um, I think out of 35, 35 companies in AI space that, that we backed, we backed around 95% of them before the AI boom. So right now, Leveraging the time and valuations are really up, but at the same time we've been early in these companies. I think uh, Generative AI space is extremely exciting. There are a like, number of exciting companies like Q.com at the same time. The applications in AI that we look at relate really, mostly related to either robotics or uh, intersection of AI and biotech. I think that's where new innovation going to be. And we don't look at curated AI space just because it's so crowded and so competitive. And we also made num- number of our bets in the last uh, three four years.
0: All right, Marsha Bucher, Day One Venture founder and general partner joining us there from Zurich. Thank you very much. Now, lots of you out there are heading back to school, whether you're on the East Coast, the West Coast, or Europe after a pretty nice summer. The word of mouth popularity of large language models, we we're just talking about them, like ChatGPT, has set the academic world ablaze after it was introduced in November last year. But as students head back to school, some educators are attempting to incorporate artificial intelligence into the classroom, PowerSchool is the leading provider of cloud-based software for K through 12 education. That means young children here in the United States. Recently announced as well that Microsoft's Azure OpenAI services are going to be integrated into its teaching tools and will be available to pilot this fall. Joining us now, PowerSchool CEO Hardeep Gulathi. There's an academic debate in and of itself about whether AI should already make its way into the classroom. Just state for us yours and PowerSchool's position on that. Sure. Thanks, Ed and Caroline, for having me on the show. Uh, you're absolutely right.
10: This is a pivotal moment in education in terms of really embracing the generative AI technology. I think one thing you will every resoundingly uh, believe in, from every educator, from every teacher, from every family, is that we need to make sure that we can personalize education for every child based on where their focus areas are and how we support. I think the one-size-fit-all has been a challenge to really be able to address some of the learning gaps, engaging every student, address the equity issues. And Generative AI actually gives us an opportunity to really personalize education at scale. One of the challenges teachers face is incorporating personalized instruction and personalized assignment. It takes many hours for them to do that in a class when you have 25, 30 kids or multiple sections. What we are incorporating with collaboration with Microsoft OpenAI is really bringing the personalized lesson planning, personalized assignments in the hands of the teachers. So now that saves them hours of time, addresses the teacher burnout and help have personalized education for every child.
2: What's interesting, Hardeep, of course, is while you've been thinking of this integration, you've also been thinking about some of the concerns surrounding AI, not only, of course, is that suddenly, well, Kids can perhaps fake some of their writing, but that aside, we know that there's AI tools to see when they're being truthful. But I'm interested in some of the, well, cyber issues, making attacks more likely, more prevalent. How are you seeing that as an area of your focus?
10: Sure, Kellen, that's a great point. Um, As you uh, remember, we actually are a technology provider for 80% of the North American school districts, so about 15,000 school districts, 90 of the top 100. One of the things, as you can imagine, we get the front row seats on both in terms of the ethical use of AI as well as the privacy and technology and security protection. I recently was actually last week in White House Cybersecurity Summit for K-12. And we shared that just on uh, the power school solutions with serving all these districts, we successfully defended our districts against one billion cyber attack events by leveraging modern cloud-based technology. By investing in the cyber security elements, we are able to really support these districts because they already have dozens, mm-hmm. if not hundreds, of technology infrastructure, many legacy, many manual points. All those things actually create challenges and vulnerability which districts don't have the resources. So we are providing even subsidized and free security as a service so we can support districts in adopting the technology more easily, modernizing their infrastructure, and being able to support and empower every teacher and student.
2: And Ed, it's interesting, isn't it? I've spoken before at sort of charitable events with teachers who are concerned a lot of the time, IT teachers, tech teachers, about how a lot of their students know more than they do. This is also about increasing literacy across the board about, Artificial intelligence in and of itself, right, Ed?
0: Yeah, f- simple question, Hardy. Should AI or at least computer science be a bigger focus on curic- curriculums worldwide? Uh, absolutely. In fact, we joined the Cordaroli Shai movement because not only we
10: are enabling. AI to be within the PowerSchools technology, but we're also making sure that we can actually incorporate that into the teacher professional learning solutions as well. We actually sub half the US school districts in teacher recruitment, substitute to teacher, as well as teacher professional learning solutions. So we're incorporating all that into the teacher's tool itself. Another exciting stuff is some of the work we are doing with states like Alabama and Montana, we are actually giving them a K through 20 view using our data platforms to actually allow them to understand what are the career pathways and how you actually bring that into the K-12 through 12 itself so you can better support the economy. So we again have an uh, opportunity to actually support these districts in modernizing the uh, curriculum. But the key yeah. element I think both of you are hearing is the context. What we want to make sure is that AI is not replacing the teacher. It's actually augmenting the teacher. It's supporting their workload. It's helping them with the burnout issues. And also it's in the context of how yes. we are actually teaching today.
2: Hardeep great to have some time with you. Hardeep Galati, CEO of Power School. Interesting one out this hour, Google expanding Ed, its generative AI tool to select sites, not just its own search engine, actually allowing you and me to experiment with the new features that display content created by AI. All of this, of course, as Microsoft seems to be perhaps looking at targeting search.
0: Yeah, there are limitations like paywalls, for example. But remember what they said at Google Google I.O. slow and deliberate rollout. This goes beyond search now to third parties.
2: Want to watch, meanwhile.
1: No,
0: that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Recap, podcast, Apple, Spotify, iHeart. This is Bloomberg Technology.
9: What
1: could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher-level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move.